Okay. Good morning, everyone. Oh. So it's both exciting and totally nerve-wracking to be standing up here in front of you right now. And just like Sherman and Daniel uh, before me, like I've been up here before, uh, presiding in the worship team. Thanks, Ryan, for taking my spot today, playing the guitar. Um, but this is a totally different feeling and a sense of responsibility. Um, and it's most definitely a one-night-only kind of event. Um, apart from the fact that I'm being broadcast on like a replayable live stream. Um, so pay attention if you don't want to miss out. Uh, let me pray before we begin. Dear Lord, I come to you this morning standing before your church, before my brothers and sisters in Christ. I would like to ask, Lord, for your peace in me, that I may not falter, and that also you may speak through me to your beloved children. In your name I pray. Amen. So... Since my title today is Thoughts on Thoughts, I've decided that it's most fitting to simply give you guys the next 25 minutes to think about the scripture reading. So, of course, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not going to make you guys do that. <laughs> but uh, I would encourage you this afternoon if you uh, want to spend time in your own study about what I talk about. So our focus for today is on Philippians 4, verse 8. But before we really get into this verse, I think it's important that we understand the context a little bit. So the book of Philippians is a letter that Paul, the former ultimate Christian nemesis, once known as Saul, wrote to the church community in Philippi where he was when he was imprisoned. Now, there are two things of note about Philippi. Uh, first of all, it was a Roman colony in Macedonia, which is in Greece, today. Um, it was where a lot of retired soldiers lived and was well known uh, for being a city of patriots, meaning that the population was all about uh, the Roman way of life and it was devoted to the emperor and worshipping their slew of gods. But more importantly to us today, Philippi was the first community of believers that Paul established in that part of the world, as mentioned in Acts 16. Um, so we know that this letter was addressed to a group of people that Paul dearly uh, loved and full of a city of people with a different set of values to these people. Values that they were familiar with and probably would have previously held themselves before turning to Christ. So the content of this letter, this small book of Philippians, doesn't focus on a singular theme. It focuses around a central poem in chapter 2, all about the kind of life Jesus led in his days on earth and the kind of person he was. Which brings us to the key text for today. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And it reads, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And this verse is just one of many in this book that challenged the Philippians and challenges us today to live our lives according to the example that Jesus set. So what's this verse actually encouraging us to do? To understand this verse properly, although it may seem a little bit dry, let's explore the origins of the words. These days, many people consume foreign media, including myself, as some of you will be very familiar with, um, or speak a second language. So I think most of you will understand that sometimes translations miss something or they get something wrong, or there's just not even that word in the language that you're trying to speak in. So our first word is true. These days, we might replace it with correct or accurate or even genuine. The original Greek word is aleph. And I may be mispronouncing these Greek words since I don't speak Greek, but 
We'll see. This word means valid, honest, and reliable. And one commentary describes true as things that are agreeable to unchangeable truths. So these are truths that are learned from either the nature, or like the way things are, or from God through revelation. So think like the world is round. That's a fact. It's something that doesn't change. The sky is blue, although lately I've seen it pretty gray with all those clouds. Um, but these are the things that kind of count as true. Next, we have honorable. Some versions of this verse uh, say noble or, or honest, but in ancient Greek, the word is semna, and this means worthy of respect. This word was often used in relation to the Roman thoughts about their gods being worthy of honor, rather than the concept of honesty or nobility that we would uh, use today. We have right next, which is dikaia in Greek. Some versions translate this as just or fair, and I think if we use these three words together, right and just and fair, then we get a pretty good picture of what Paul was trying to uh, me say with this word. A more direct translation of dikaia specifies that it's not just being just and right to in any sense, but in your duty to both men and God. Our next word, pure. Purity is probably a concept that uh, most people are familiar with, and it's the word used in every single translation that I looked through. And the Greek, which is hagna, describes pure as effectively the same way that we understand it now. It's being in a state of cleanness and moral, moral purity. Although there is a little extra meaning to the uh, ancient Greek word in that it was often used to describe something that was ceremonial, ceremonially, ceremonially clean to bring before God. Next up, we have a word that we don't really use these days, sadly. I think it's a nice word. I think it's a lovely word, even. Um, so we use it to describe something beautiful and attractive. And I'd also suggest that normally we use these, we use lovely um, when things are attractive in like an innocent or delicate way, maybe like a flower. And Greek, uh, in Greek, Paul used the word prosphile, uh, which doesn't really have anything to do with beauty, actually. But it describes what is amiable or friendly or pleasant. We're almost at our, the end of our list. Uh, so stay with me just a little bit longer. But we have admirable next, or euphema. Uh, this word is a little trickier than some of the previous words. When I tried to think of a situation I would use it in, the only thing I could really come up with was like, oh, that's admirable of you when someone does something that I respect them for, or maybe something that I would like to see my, myself do. Uh, something like an example to look up to. A specific definition more connected to this original word euphema, though, would be something that is praiseworthy because it measures up to the highest standard. So not just something that's a great act or anything like that. Praiseworthy because it measures up to a high standard. Uh, we finish the main list in that first bit of the verse and reach our penultimate adjective, which is excellent, or arit in ancient Greek. There's something particularly interesting about this word. This is the only time that Paul ever used it in all of his writing. It's a very broad word, and it describes every kind of excellence, from the quality of a field or an animal to, to the virtue of man. It's been suggested that Paul used this word here in order to make a stronger connection to the people that he was addressing. Like I mentioned at the start, the Philippians weren't uh, like Christians to start off with. They were founded in a community of people, um, pagan, a pagan community, 
or secular community. And just like these days, how it's hard to understand someone when they're using a lot of jargon, um, there were words that are specific to an area of expertise. So as a designer, if I started talking about uh, letting or creep or orphans or widows, or just to bring in food and match everyone else, if I was talking about tofu, many of you would not have a clue as to what I'm talking about. And you might feel isolated, but another designer, especially one who works with typography or publications, they would understand. And by the way, the tofu that I'm talking about isn't food, so it's almost a mention of food, but not quite. It's those little square boxes with a question mark in it that you might see online or in a text message, which normally replace like an, an emoji that you don't have on, in your software. So fun fact for the day. Uh, just in the same way that a non-designer wouldn't understand when I'm using design-specific language, I also wouldn't understand what a lawyer was saying, or a surgeon, or an engineer, or a chemist. Sometimes I have absolutely no idea what my brother, who's in his final year of high school, is talking about when he's talking about his chemistry class. So I'm totally lost at that level of chemistry. I can't imagine like a higher level. And even when I was new to Singapore, like five or six years ago, I had a hard time understanding what the other youth were saying. They kept talking really fast in all these dialects and like throwing in bits of like words from all, coin all sorts of languages. And now I've come to understand it a little bit. Um, and it no longer seems like they're speaking really fast, but it was really tricky at the start. But this is why Paul uses this really broad word, aritz. Uh, he wants even the newest members of this Christian community in Philippi to be able to grasp onto what he was saying, what he was trying to mean, telling them that if this old pagan or secular, as we might say now, idea of excellence has any meaning to you, start with that. Think of the highest quality things in your life before Christ in your general day-to-day -day going about and use that as a point to push you higher as a Christian. And finally, you might notice this isn't Greek, but I couldn't find the right Greek uh, word or phrase for it. But it's worth mentioning because worthy of praise, if you remember a couple of minutes ago, is what I used to describe the word admirable. So why is it here if it's technically the same as before? Well, firstly, things that are repeated are typically repeated for emphasis to show that they're important. Uh, and I think that's part of it. But this isn't just a reinforcement of what Paul already said. Admirable is a word that usually refers to people or events or places, things. But worthy of praise refers specifically to God. It centers itself on the attributes and action of God revealed to us through Jesus and the Bible. So now that we have a better understanding of all these things that Paul said, uh, told us to think about, Let's move on to how we can actually apply this to our lives and why it's important. Because as much as we try and say or think the things that Paul has listed, there are times when it really is impossible. Uh, just a couple of, like in the recent years, a psychological construct known as toxic positivity has kind of come around. This is the belief that in many and all situations, people should always, always maintain a positive mindset, no matter what happens. You might identify this type of positivity in yourself or in others by seeing, like, by if you're hiding your painful emotions, your grief, your sorrow, or your anger or distress, if you feel guilty when you feel these emotions, or if you're ignoring your problems, which is something that I'm guilty of, there's one, one person in the Bible who stands out as someone who had every reason to think things that weren't lovely or admirable or excellent or anything else on this list, and that was Job. The book of Job is surprisingly long, given that it's only about one man. Uh, it's 42 chapters. 
And it's only about one event in Job's life too. So it's a pretty important event if it took up so much, so many pages. We start off with Job's story with hearing all about how great a man he was. If I'm going to paraphrase Job 1, verses 1 to 3, it says that Job was a man who was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had a fair number of children and thousands upon thousands of livestock, and he was the greatest man among the East, everyone in the East even. And then all of a sudden, all he had, all his sons and daughters, all his servants, everything perished. He was left with only himself and his wife, and Job was even afflicted with painful sores all over his body. And then in chapter 3, he begins to speak his mind, wishing that he had never been born. He lamented over the fact that he didn't die as an infant, and that the people who seek out death due to the bitterness of their soul, they never seemed to find what they wanted. In chapter 6, we see him hopeless. He was requesting God just to kill him, asking what he had done so wrong to deserve all this injustice. In chapter 7, verses 11 to 16, Job uh, repeats that he'll complain, he'll voice his anguish, and he says once more that he despises his life and would rather die than keep on living. He goes on about these things again and again in chapter 10 and 16, 19, 23, even some more chapters. They're just full of the same. Chapters of sorrow and anger and Job putting himself down. But through all of that, there was something else. So many misfortunes befell Job, and he had all kinds of thoughts that weren't kind, they weren't admirable, they weren't excellent, they don't seem to be to me anyway. But there was nothing wrong with that. Just like Daniel mentioned last week, it's perfectly fine and very human to need time to work through an emotion or a thought, and that's exactly what Job did. He worked through his thoughts about whether God was really a good God, whether he was just. He talked them out with both his friends and directly to God. And God didn't get angry and punish Job for crying out in his pain, but he replied with authority, reminding him of all the things that he was in control of. God was the one asking Job now, in chapters 38 to 42, where were you when I created the earth? Do you know how to control the weather? Can you move the stars? Can, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Can you control the almighty beasts, behemoth, and Leviathan? God mentions situation after situation that Job would have no idea about in order to remind him of his place and of God's power. And we end with seeing that God is not angry with Job at all. Job even, he even tells Job's three friends who, were talking, who had been trying to reason with Job um, and persuade Job to assume certain qualities of God to take the bulls and rams to Job so that they could be sacrificed and that Job could pray over them. So in God's mind, Job was someone worthy of sacrificing, uh, making a sacrifice for his guilty friends and even praying over them. So and he was even given all his uh, fortune restored. He had double the amount of everything that he had to start with, except maybe his children. So he was restored. And what does Job's story show us? Most of the time, people talk about Job to understand God's justice, but that's not what I want to focus on. Job's story shows us that it's not about forcing good thoughts or being toxically positive. That's not possible or healthy or what God is asking of us. So another person who had a lot of troubles and was often depressed was good old King David. So as interesting as some of 
David's darkest psalms are. That's not what I'm going to talk about since the overarching concept was covered by Job's story. Instead, we'll be taking a look into his life and specifically one story in 2 Samuel. If you turn me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you may be able to guess where I'm headed because chapter 11 is probably one of the most well-known stories of David. David and Bathsheba. Up until this point, David's been painted as a pretty great guy. He stood up to Goliath. He commanded armies. He spared the life of Saul, who was trying to kill him out of his jealousy and fear. So he was an all-around good guy, I'd say, by anyone's standard at this point. But then we have this story all of a sudden. King David had sent out his whole army to war, but he himself had stayed back in Jerusalem. And this is where the trouble happened. One evening from his rooftop, he saw a beautiful woman bathing, who was Bathsheba. He asked who she was. He found out all about her, that she was married to one of the men in his army. And after getting all this information, he decides that he wants to summon her to her palace and sleep with her before sending her back to her home. Now, he probably thought he could get away with this, given that Bathsheba's husband was out fighting a war, and all of the men, a lot of the men would have been out there too. But David had created a bit of a problem for himself. Bathsheba was pregnant. And her husband, like I just said, was not around. He was fighting a war and wouldn't be back for some time. So David's first way to try and fix this problem wasn't the worst thing he could do, probably. It's not great, but it's not the worst thing he could do. He called back Uriah from the battlefield uh, under the guise of asking him to report on uh, what was happening in the war. And then he told Uriah that while he was in the city, he should go and spend some time with his wife. Um, but he found out the next morning that Uriah never went back home. He had slept out in front of the palace because his men on the battlefield were sleeping uh, under the stars and so should he. So David tried once more before sending Uriah back with what was most, most definitely uh, the worst solution, definitely morally. Uh, he sent a letter for the commander with instructions to put Uriah on the front line, where the fighting was the most fierce and where Uriah was, was totally certain to die. And die he did, so David got what he wanted in the end, I guess. Um, but what does this have to do with our scripture reading and with what Paul was saying about our own thoughts, you might ask? Well, in this event, I think it's pretty clear that David's thoughts were the opposite of, I'm going to have to say, everything that Paul listed down. Um, they weren't true, they weren't lovely, certainly, certainly weren't lovely. Um, we're never told directly what David is thinking, sure, but we can see it in his actions, so we'll work backwards. Uh, did David summoning a married woman to sleep with him come from a pure thought? Did it come from an honorable one? Was he thinking right thoughts when he asked Uriah, ordered Uriah to be killed in an unsuspecting manner? And the answer to all these questions is a very definitive N-O, no. While Job struggled with his dark thoughts and his relationship with God, uh, he dealt with it all by talking things out. On the other hand, we have David, whose state of thoughts was clearly communicated by his actions. And this is what Paul was talking about in Philippians by expressly, expressly mentioning the types of thoughts that we should have. In Philippians 4 verse 9, it reads, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul tells the Philippians to put things into practice. Practice implies action and just like how what we keep in our mind 
uh, what we keep our mind on, is reflected by our words and what we do, as shown through David's story especially. So this verse and this passage, it's not simply a list of things we should or shouldn't do. It's not telling us, be this and be that, and there's nothing else. It's just black and white. It's not like that. Its purpose, and mine today as well, is to bring attention to our thoughts and to what God wants us to think about in order to become a more mature Christian, to empower people to discern for for themselves, just like how Paul ended this verse openly with, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise. This whole passage is encouraging, advocating peace and hope and joy. And can you have those things when you focus on the opposite of all these things? On the destructive or the depressive or the devilish? I've been there. I've been bogged down in those thoughts, surrounded by the darkness and not by peace and not hope and certainly not joy. So I know that it's not possible. And even though I've been aware for a while that I wanted to change some of my thinking patterns and some of the things I focus on, Writing this sermon was both a learning opportunity and a struggle. I found myself pushing back writing the script uh, because I thought that if I ignored it, then somehow magically it would go away and I wouldn't have to deal with it. Um, And because thinking about writing the sermon and trying to write it, I've kept having all of these intrusive thoughts that I, I don't have anything to say, that I don't deserve to be saying anything because this is something I struggle with myself. Um, and I don't deserve to be up here because I kept putting it off. I didn't feel like I was good enough. But I was encouraged by friends and a mentor, and once I really got into writing this, I was also encouraged by Paul and Job and David and other stories that I looked into. So how can we follow Paul's advice? How can we put into practice what he has said and what he has done? Well, this is where my joke from the start comes in. I think it's a great place to start. I think a great place to start is thinking about uh, our thing, our thoughts. We can identify the thoughts that we need to change, and that we need to say bye to, the, and we can work backwards from there to find the source of these thoughts. Maybe they come from the media that we consume, or the people we spend our time with. Uh, maybe there's something else that is influencing us in a negative way. But once we start paying attention to these uh, thoughts, we'll be able to come up with an action plan to work on turning the wrong thoughts into the right ones, the ones that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Because keeping our minds on all these things helps us to stay strong in our beliefs and reflect God in our lives, which I think was Paul's ultimate goal. So I want to end with a quote that hopefully is catchy enough to stick with you if nothing else has. And it goes like this. What's your thoughts? Because they become your words. What's your words? Because they become your actions. What's your actions? They become habits. What's your habits? They become character. And what's your character? For it becomes your destiny. Thank you. Thank you for that apt reminder, Ella. As we close today's service, may we all rise. And as we sing, let us remember that whatever we do, whatever our thoughts we have, we surrender everything to the Lord. Lord, to Jesus.
let us pray. Almighty Lord, we come to you at the end of our service today, grateful that we could come together as a church to worship and bring our hearts closer to you once again. God, I ask that you will be with each and every person here today and everyone watching online, that we may all be encouraged to take a look at our thoughts, to make the changes we need so that we can better reflect you to those around us. May we surrender the things that are standing in our way of becoming closer to you. As we prepare to go into a new week, help us to share and share your love, Lord, to those, both others and ourselves. In your name I pray, amen.